Yeah. Yeah. Who wants to hear Bob speak? <laughs> no, you don't. Yes, you do, actually. You want to hear me speak because God has done an amazing, amazing work in my life. Um, I just, um, at the beginning of the year, I got really sick and I was diagnosed with um, what they call COPD, which is um, chronic obstructive respiratory disease or pulmonary disease or whatever, which is something that you have for the rest of your life. And, um, and I was put on medication and they said, you'll have it, you'll have to take this medication um, for the rest of your life, you'll only get, you know, gradually get worse. I was very breathless. I just couldn't um, do anything. I couldn't walk up hills, run, do those things that I had always done before. And um, anyway, I've I've been prayed lots of times um, by different people, and um, I've always just believed that God would do something. Um, but I was like, it's not happening, God. And um, so anyway, I was down at um, a church down in... Christchurch um, with a friend and I was prayed for there but um, God just did something and throughout the whole of the service I could feel him doing something in my um, in my chest and I just I didn't know what that was but I, I thought God's healing me I just really believe that and so anyway I um, I said to my friend can I go off my medication and she went no <laughs> you can't do that so I didn't, and um, but I'd been before I'd been down to Christchurch. I'd had some tests done, and then I came back, um, and I had another test done, which was a breathing test, which had been organised to do. And um, when I went to see the doctor this last Monday, he said, "You haven't got COPD. Come on. It's gone." Amen. I was so excited. <laughs> And so, yeah, I am completely healed, and praise God. I just can't praise him enough. I don't know the words to say to thank him enough. It's just amazing. So good. Wow. Are you wanting, are you wanting to share? Is that, oh, you're bringing, oh, yeah, cool, awesome. Come, that's great. Whose is this? It was on the floor. It's, oh, Kerry's. Ah, says, I'm very busy. <sighs> right, where's my iPad? Joys of wearing multiple hats at the moment as I keep leaving things all over the place. Uh, my name's Shannon. For those of you that haven't met me, um, I'm the lead pastor here, and a special welcome to you this morning because I, I haven't had a chance to do that this morning, but if you're new here, we're very excited that you're here. Uh, you have come at an interesting time. You have come at an interesting time. Uh, <laughs> you come at a crazy time. Come at a confusing time. Uh, I'm going to preach the most controversial sermon I've ever preached this morning. You say that now. You say that now. You, um, because you've come in the middle of a series. Last week we uh, began our final series before Christmas. And uh, it's a series I'm calling The Journey. And it's an attempt to explain something that's been in my spirit for several months and really several years. Uh, it's been developed through little conversations, sometimes accidentally, sometimes intentionally. It's been developed through my private time with God and through reading Scripture. It's been developed through conversations with other pastors. It's been developed through members of our congregation. It's been developed through elders meetings that have gone way, way, way over time. Uh, how many elders in here would know what I'm talking about? It's, yep. it's been developed by conversations I've had with unbelievers uh, and what I've observed in the lives of people coming out of darkness and into light. It's been developed through what I know to be simple truth and what I don't understand to be 
complex and mysterious mysteries of humanity and spirituality. It's a series I've been terrified to preach. Not because I feel out of step with God. Uh, I feel I've heard from God very clearly. But I've seen pastors get hung out to dry over much less. (laughs) But God has not stopped harassing me about it. And he spoke to me very clearly at Bethel that it's time and whatever happens, happens and get on with it and do it. Uh, One of God's favorite words to me in my prayer time at the moment is, did I stutter? (laughs) Did you not hear me? So um, I'm going to do this, but just for my peace of mind, I want to give a couple of really helpful disclaimers before we begin. Are you ready? I believe in the Trinity, one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He was born to a virgin, lived a sinless life, and died on the cross for our sins, literally. I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that nobody comes to the Father except through Him. I believe there is no other name under heaven or earth by which we can be saved. I believe in heaven, I believe in hell, and I believe that there are people going to both of them, although I think we have a very, very terrible understanding of how that works. I believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, and that the entire book, as Paul said, is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, although I must confess I believe God is bigger than the Bible. Uh, I believe that God is bigger than every book ever written, put together. I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it is the power unto God for everyone who believes. I believe the Bible when it says the gospel is offensive, but not in the way that we think. Because the only people that I can find in the Bible that were offended by the gospel were the church, were the Pharisees. And I think the gospel is much more offensive to those in the church than it is to those outside the church. I believe God is so much bigger than what we know. I believe he's even better than we imagine he is. So with that said and done, disclaimer, all emails to elders must be prefaced with that. Turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Acts. Book of Acts, chapter 17. When you've got it, say amen. Uh, I'm going to read a passage of scripture that you've heard before, but I'm probably going to say something about it that you might not have heard before or thought about before. Uh, Acts chapter 17, I want to perk it up, perk it up, pick it up. At uh, verse 16, and we're going to read through to the end of the chapter. Are you ready? Reading from the New Living Translation, it says, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, them, you know, that's them, Paul and Silas, and so, while he was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. He also had a debate with some of the, uh, those guys uh, and some Stoic philosophers. Then he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, and he said, "What is this?" Ba-? And they said, "What is this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up?" Others say he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Then they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching. They said, "You are saying some rather strange things." I just feel like this is what you might say about me this morning, and we want to know what it's all about. It should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as all the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines, and one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. This God, whom you worship without knowing, is the one I'm telling you about. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples, and human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. 
hearts. He gives himself, he, he himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us, said Paul, speaking to the non-Christians. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And since this is true, and since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from God or silver or stone. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he proved to everyone that this is, who this is by raising him from the dead. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt, but others said, we want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them, but some joined him and became believers. Among them were that guy, a member of the council, and a woman, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. I want to talk to you this morning from the thought, the forest for the trees. The forest for the trees. And I want to start with a couple of uh, related questions. How many people here this morning have at least one sibling? At least one sibling. Uh, was there ever a time growing up where you noticed that your parents treated your sibling different to you? Any, any firstborns in the room? You know what I'm talking about. If you're a firstborn in the room with a younger brother or sister, you know what I'm talking about. You know, at Grant's funeral recently, Emma and Jess and Jacob were talking about they discovered as they were writing their tribute to Grant that they all had different internet off times growing up. The injustice. Emma's used to get turned off at seven and by the time Jacob was a teenager, his didn't get, used to get turned off to like 11 o'clock at night. The injustice. You'll have noticed that there are times, there are things that you did and your parents disciplined you one way and then your, kid, your, your brother or sister did exactly the same thing and they did it, it's like they got off the hook. It's like they treated them, it's like, what was that? I remember growing up, you know, I, I, I love my mother, I love my family. Uh, my sister and I are very different people and we needed very different parenting styles. I remember once uh, when I was struggling to come to terms and process the emotion of uh, my dad uh, leaving home and my mum said was, was just desperate for me to get a little emotional. So she said, let's go play catch with a basketball. In the face. Just catch got more and more aggressive. I found out years later that was deliberate just to get some tears because once it, once it broke the seal, I, I dealt with what I needed to deal with and I cried for like an hour straight. How many people know the pain had gone from the ball after about five minutes? I remember one time when I was struggling, not wanting to go to school as an 11-year-old because I was battling with sickness and I was battling again with family things and all this sort of stuff and my mum rang the principal and got him on the phone and passed the phone to me And Mr. Mason said to me, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to get a blood test and come to school, sir. I was 11 years old. <laughs> I remember my sister getting days off all the time, no worries. And at the time, I thought, the injustice of this. I see now different. How many, how many, let me ask another question. How many parents in here this morning, how many, how many parents this morning are brave enough to admit you treat your kids differently? They're in Sunday school, they won't know. How many people are prepared to, to admit that there's some of your children that you give tough love and some of your children that you give a lot of grace? Yeah. We treat them, and there's a reason. 
There's a reason. Because we know that we have to. The reality is different children respond to situations differently. We're all, we all have a different makeup. There's no one parenting style. Emma and I only have one child, but we are not foolish enough to think that if and when we have a second one, that the same parenting techniques we've used on Taya will work with the next one. Because he or she will have their own personality, their own uh, things that they struggle with, their own things that they excel at. And so therefore we have to parent differently. If you've been a teacher, you'll know that different kids have different learning styles. You can't just go in and go, this is how it's done. Everybody do it this way. Have you ever read the Bible and felt like God was unfair or inconsistent? Like three honest Christians in the room this morning. How about the story where the guy puts his hand out to stop the ark from falling and God strikes him dead? Like, like you ever just look at that and go, a little unfair, if I'm honest? What about the time that this guy Jacob deceives his older brother, he's out of his blessing, and God honors that. <laughs> like God goes, cool, well, well, Jacob's the guy. Seem a little unfair to you when God blesses the, the deceiving ways of someone else? Or like the time that Jesus spends most of his, most of his ministry telling Peter off for everything. Like, Peter just gets told off for breathing some days. I think you look at some of the stories. He puts foot He does things that all the other disciples are doing, but Jesus calls him up on it. Peter does things that we all do on a daily basis, and Peter does it once because he has a weak moment, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Meanwhile, the Bible says that Judas walked with them for the entire time of ministry, stealing from the offering... And Jesus never once hit him up about it. Now, I want you to think about all the things that Jesus hits Peter up about and where you would put them on the scale of stealing from the offering. <laughs> I go, huh? <laughs> what? Like, let's just all acknowledge that's weird. That's difficult. That seems a little unfair. And so the question that we <laughs> seem to, that we can ask is, did Jesus just forget what he'd done yesterday? Or maybe Jesus just had no idea how to be consistent. Or maybe, could it be just the tiniest bit possible that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing? If you've ever felt like God was unfair, the good news is you are not the only person that's ever felt this way. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 1 to 16, it's going to come up on the screen. We're not going to go there for the sake of time. I'm going to kind of paraphrase it. Uh, but you can look it up in your own time. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 1 to 16, we read a parable where Jesus is describing what the kingdom of heaven is like. And he says, It's like a man who hired workers for his vineyard and agreed to pay them each a denarius for the day. A denarius was equivalent to a day's wages. It says he goes out again at nine, at noon, and at three, and hires more workers for the day. And at the end of the day, he pays them all exactly the same amount. And the ones who started early in the morning go, whoa, 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 whoa. He didn't start till three o'clock. And when he got here, he stood with his pants in his pocket for the first three. You know, there were three of them watching a road cone. If they're getting one denarius, surely we should be getting two, three. 
And it says the man in the vineyard looks at the man and goes, uh, did you get what I promised you? Like at any point, did I not give you what I told you I would give you? Then what business is it of yours with what I do with this person over here? What, person, what business is it of yours with what I do over here? You know, it's the same thing with the story of the prodigal son, the second son. What the? Goes, Hang on. Didn't everything I have already belong to you? For preaching, I mean. We tend to see justice as where everyone gets measured by the same standards. Our standards. God's justice is where everybody is measured according to his standards. And his standards are the finished work of Jesus Christ. And yet often when God measures us by his same standard, it looks like different standards to us. Some people get healed immediately. Some people never get healed. Some people get convicted of sin the moment they become Christians. Others, God doesn't challenge on that very same sin for years, maybe not even at all. We struggle with that. We especially struggle with that when God doesn't challenge something in someone else that he challenged in us. (laughs) Hang on a minute. You put your finger on that thing and you're letting them get away with it. The injustice. I feel like God would say, did I give you what what I promised you? Then what right do you have to be concerned with what I do with that person? You know, Peter, again, that whole thing with Peter and John, when, when Jesus comes back and he tells them what's going to happen to him, he goes, what about John? <laughs> he's like, you spent your whole time telling me off. You never told John off once. <laughs> he's like, what does it matter to you? What happens to John? You should be concerned with your walk, with your future, with your destiny, with what I'm saying to you. Here's where I want to get tricky this morning because I think the church and church leadership teams can spend a lot of time trying to be fair, trying to be consistent. And I think it's our biggest downfall because we're trying to use our faulty scales. You know, Bex running the youth ministry. There's times where you go, well, we need to treat all the kids. You know, if I spend this much time with that child, I need to spend this much time with that teenager. Consistence, fear. doesn't work. Do you know how many people miss out when we try to be fair? Imagine God tells you to give $100 to someone in a situation and the first thing you think of is five people who are in a worse situation and so you don't give $100 to the person God asked you to give because, well, what about them? I didn't ask you about them. I prompted you about that. And so we decide, here's a challenge question for you if you're taking notes. Do you know how much you would miss out on if God judged you by your standards? I'm grateful God doesn't judge me by my standards or by your standards, but by his standards. I think the biggest danger of the church is that we are more concerned with protecting the outcome than protecting the process. And at this point, you might say, of course we are. The goal is, is that someone comes to Jesus. That's the only outcome we should be happy with. We have to protect the outcome. And I hear what you're saying. And I agree with you to a point. But I think we need to spend more time as the church trying to protect the process instead of the outcome. Allow me to demonstrate 
through story this morning why I think that's important and through some illustrations. And, and like, I'm just going to talk about some issues this morning that you want to talk to me about them, you talk to me about them afterwards. Write me an email, come have coffee. Anyway, four years ago, at the National Baptist Assembly, uh, the Baptist Union had a big discussion and a decision to make regarding the law changes at the time concerning same-sex marriages. Now, I don't want to get boiled down today about that particular issue, but I want to talk about processes and, processes and outcomes. Because we're a Baptist church and because we are Baptist churches, these decisions aren't made by appointed national leaders or councils, etc., but by church representatives all coming together to discuss and discern and to vote together on what we believe God's saying. Concerning this topic alone, there were four different outcomes that people wanted to see. One group of people wanted permission to perform same-sex marriages as Baptist pastors and in Baptist churches. One group of people wanted our Baptist administration manual to be updated to say that Baptist pastors could not perform same-sex marriages and that our buildings could not be used for them either. It had nothing to do with what the law said. It had to do with our churches, right? One group didn't want to do same-sex marriages, but didn't want to be told that they couldn't do same-sex marriages because that infringed on their Baptist autonomy. It's like, we agree with you, but you're not allowed to tell us. (laughs) I'm doing this because I want to do this. One group didn't want to do same-sex marriages, but, but they wanted pretty much the same thing as the second group. But instead of putting it in the admin manual, they wanted to add it to our articles of faith. As a Baptist union, we have five statements in our articles of faith, and they have never been altered or added to since the Baptist union was established in New Zealand. Like, these things are sacred cows. You don't just touch them because. And so there's one group going, this is such a big issue, it needs to be added to our sacred cow. This is the group I want to focus on this morning. Because I hear their heart, I know what they were trying to do. But the problem that I have with that, because, I mean, again, let me clarify, I don't care what we're discussing. This could be whether peanut butter and jam go on bread together, for all I care. My observation is this. At first glance, group four appears to want the same thing as group two. What difference does it make whether it's in the admin manual or the articles of faith? The answer is simple but powerfully significant. The people in the fourth group wanted to put it in the articles of faith because it would be much harder to change again in the future. The articles of faith have never been altered because it's a big deal to change your founding document. The administration manual gets altered at least twice a year. If we put it in there, it's easy to change again later. See, this group of people were looking at the next generation coming through going, they're going to break the church (laughs) because their culture says this is okay. They're going to break it. And so what we're going to do is we're going to make it hard for them. So, you know, fine, you do what you want to do, but it's going to be hard to make that happen here. Here's why that's a problem. It's not the decision. It's the fact that as the church, we would rather protect the outcome and lock the decision in because it's easier than teaching the next generation to discern biblically. We would rather just think for them than teach them how to think. That's not wisdom, that's control. That doesn't honor God. That dishonors a generation. You know, we live in this world where health and safety has gone crazy. 
You can't climb trees anymore. You, know, you want to do youth group activities, you've got to have so much paperwork. <laughs> we have to have a risk form just for church, which I think is awesome. Just by the way, <laughs> what could go wrong? Well, when the Holy Spirit turns up, you just, you know. How do you, how do you prepare for those risks? We, we don't know. <laughs> I'm sure, like, you know, in the Toronto police, they didn't have, like, a guy will bark like a dog. What the potential risks of this might be, it might upset people. <laughs> you can't prepare for what, God. anyway, I get off track. Um, health and safety's gone crazy. Why? Because we're trying to protect the outcome. We're trying to stop people hurting themselves. We're trying to go, if, if, if nobody climbs trees, no one can get hurt. Yep. There's a problem with that. No one can have fun either. No one can think for themselves. Cotton wool, cotton wool, cotton wool. When we try to protect the outcome instead of the process, it says one of two things. Goodness me, is that the time? Flip. Uh, <laughs> when we try to protect the outcome instead of the process, it says one of two things. Either number one, we don't trust God to lead his people. Or number two, we don't trust his people to listen. And you can't have a church where you don't trust God and you don't trust people. As Christians, we have lost the ability to process. And in fact, as the world, we've lost the ability to process. These are my beliefs simply because they've always been my beliefs. And if you challenge those beliefs, if you don't believe those beliefs, either and you express those beliefs, and they don't, either you will break me or I will break you. We've forgotten how to process because I've locked these things in. I've put them in my sacred cow. <laughs> the Bible says, uh-oh, the Bible says, you know, we, we lock these things in because the Bible says, you know, we, 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 when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, you know what he said to him? The Bible says, you know what Jesus said? The Bible also says, We can't, have a, we can't have a faith that says the Bible says without the Bible also says. Process. There's too many people trying to live by one verse. If you, if you live by a verse without the whole Bible, you'll never work it out. And in fact, I'll go as far to say, if you live with the whole Bible without the Holy Spirit, you'll still never work it out. This book is the most powerful book in the world, but it is not God. I was going to say, you know that, right? You like <laughs> People looked at me like, what? <laughs> this book is the most powerful book in the world, but it is not God. I'm not saying burn it. I'm not saying throw it out. If you're hearing that, you're hearing me wrong. We've lost the ability to process and we need to get it back. Here's why. Because following godly process will always lead to godly outcome. Following godly process will always lead to God-honoring outcome. And there's two steps to this process. Well, there's many steps, but they summarize into two parts. You ready? If you're taking notes, turn that clock off. Right, step one, discerning the truth. What does God say about this topic? And is it the same thing that God said about it previously? Has God moved on this issue? Oh man, it's getting quiet up in here. I love what Bo said a couple of weeks ago about the importance of hearing what God is saying and not what God has said. 
If, if, if Abraham had listened to what God had said about sacrificing, his, about sacrificing his son Isaac and failed to listen to what God said next, and he could have leaned on a scripture and said, but God said, but God also said. You might say to me, but God never changes. But God never changes. You're right. But the Bible also says God's doing a new thing. Here's the thing. Some things in the Bible have changed. Some haven't. Some haven't. And I'll make that. Some haven't. And we need wisdom to know which ones have and which ones haven't. Because if we just apply the same rule to everything, if we go, nothing changes. Well, we know that's wrong. How many of you believe God's okay with slavery? Good. You, you, you can find verses that you could say, God said. So we know that this has changed. God hasn't changed, but he's changing us. How many people believe that women should be silent in church? Don't put your hand up if, if you're one of them. I don't want to know. <laughs> Gabby at the back. Yeah. <laughs> you're failing, by the way. If that's what you're just saying. <laughs> Says the one who's never been afraid to speak her mind. <laughs> oh, Gabby, I love you. Uh, right, so, so again, something's moved. Something's shifted. But we could use verses. <laughs> How many Gentiles were grateful that God moved his stance on circumcision? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. of the men and maybe some of the women, I don't know. But at the same time, if we apply the rule that says everything changes, well, that's wrong too. And that can lead us into dangerous ground for other reasons. Someone was talking to me recently about the dangers of moving the line in how we do church. You know, we just keep moving the line. And I heard what they were saying and I understood and yet if the Bible teaches us one thing, if you, if you could summarize the story of Jesus in a sentence, it would be this. That time that God moved the line. <laughs> like, God, mo- the line moves. It's dangerous to move a line that God isn't moving, but it's also dangerous to hold a line that God is moving. The two most destructive things in the future of the church are this. Saying things are okay that God isn't saying are okay. And saying things aren't okay that God is trying to move on. The important part for us becomes how do we discern the difference? Which issue has God moved on? Which issues has God remained the same on? And this is where we have to cling so tightly to God, relying on his Holy Spirit to lead us in all truth like Jesus promised he would. This isn't a message that goes, let's stray away from God. This is a message that goes, we need to get closer to God. Usually we use the wrong process. Usually we decide that God is okay with the things that we are struggling with. But God isn't okay with the things that we don't. Yeah? Yeah? I battle with an addiction to this. God understands. But that person over there, what the? Don't pretend like you've never done it. I've done it. It's the wrong process. We need a better process for discerning. Godly process will always lead to God honoring outcome. Whether the outcome remains the same 
or whether the outcome changes. Now, you might be sitting here this morning and go, but Shannon, someone might abuse that. People might abuse that. There's no might about it. People will abuse that. There's people who will say, God told me to do such and such, and I look at, I look at that and I go, I don't think he did. You ever had that? Where someone's gone, God said it was okay. And you're like, mm. <laughs> but we can do the health and safety thing. If we're scared that someone might get hurt or someone might misuse it. If we're scared that someone might crash a car, we go, no more cars. No more discernment because someone might discern wrongly. <laughs> That's true with anything. Here's what I found. 90% of people don't. 90% of people that I've taken this approach to ministry with, to have drawn closer to God, not further away. Have held tighter to his truth and not looser. I once read a quote that I love. I don't know who it's by, but it said this. The fact that we try to take negative decisions away from people when God deliberately introduced one into the Garden of Eden says something about how we misunderstand the character of God. See, we just want to take all the sins away. We want to take away the ability. Let's get rid of the drugs. Let's get rid of the abortion clinics. Let's get rid of this. Let's get rid of those churches. Let's get rid of whatever it is. See, the test of the power of God is, when you, is not when all those things are gone. It's when you can have all those things available and nobody goes near them. of people will get a little crazy. You and I both know that 10% of people were crazy beforehand. They were already doing this. (laughs) So, step one. We need to discern the truth through prayer, through scripture, through culture, through theology, through all these different things. Step two is we need to discern how to apply the truth. Once we know what the truth is, we have to ask, how do we apply the truth? Last week, I used the example of the woman caught in the act of adultery, and the, and, and the, the, the Pharisees knew the truth. They said, Jesus, the truth says, and Jesus went, yep, and then did something different. <laughs> he knew the truth. He believed the truth. He agreed with the truth. He applied it differently. So we have to learn, how do we apply the truth? We can assume that knowing the truth is all we have to do. But how we apply it is just as important. The next most destructive thing in the mission of God, on top of those ones I used before about moving on things that God's not moving on or not moving on things that God is moving on, the next most destructive thing is churches that have correctly discerned the truth but have applied it disastrously. Did you know it's possible to be right but wrong at the top of your lungs? And this is where my story earlier about parents and siblings comes in because sometimes you need to apply truth differently for different people. There's only one truth but there's many applications or outworkings. Like a parent knows, some children will only respond to straight-up, hard-line parenting. Yet with other children, that can have the complete opposite effect. There were times where Jesus drew a hard line, where he said to the rich young ruler, you want to follow me? Go and give everything you have to the poor. And he's like, I can't do that. He's like, well, see ya. And there are other times that you could almost imply that Jesus was, seemed to be making excuses for people based on how we look at things. 
There were times where Jesus seemed to make allowances for things that we would consider far worse than give, whether you wouldn't give half of your stuff to the poor. You know, like if someone walked into the church with a whole lot of money and, and we'd say to them, you should give a whole lot of that away, like we would overlook a whole lot of sin, especially if they tithed. <laughs> Generally. And so Jesus knew when to draw a hard line and when to show grace, when to show justice, when to show grace, and how to show them both perfectly. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1 to 8 says this. For everything there is a season, a time for every activity under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to harvest, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to cry and a time to laugh, a time to grieve and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to turn away, a time to search and a time to quit searching, a time to keep and a time to throw, throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be quiet and a time to speak a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. We need to discern the time. We need to discern the application. God's truth doesn't change, but our understanding of God changes all the time. And the best thing to do changes from person to person. See, we can't see the forest for the trees. A teenager who is sleeping with a different girl every weekend versus a teenager who's sleeping with his long-term girlfriend, have different problems. One's struggling with a lust issue. The other one's struggling with a boundary issue. But it looks the same. But you're going to have to approach it differently. But the Bible says, I know. <laughs> let, me, let me ask you this. If you get lost in the northern part of a forest, if you're a big forest and you get lost in the northern part, and someone gives you a map for the southern part of the forest, is that helpful? Not at all. But it's all the same forest. Yes, but they're different trees. When we try to protect the outcome instead of the process, we make policies that assume everybody's journey is the same as ours. And we make policies that actually shut people out who have a different journey to ours. Our policies, our blanket policies, because we go, well, this works for me, and if it doesn't work for you, well, that's awkward. Oh, help me, Jesus. We'll make blanket policies like anyone who's being divorced can't be an elder. Or anyone who's living with their partner outside of marriage can't be on the worship team. Or let me push it this morning, because i got nothing more to lose. Someone in a gay relationship can never serve in the church. To, to, the, to the principal. To the <laughs> so we need to look at the policy. We need to look at the application. We need to look at how we work these things out. Blanket policies. It's not that there are not times where these might be the right answers. But when we make them blanket policies, we remove the need to ask God. We go, God, we've already got a verse for that. We've already got a policy for that. We don't actually need you to tell us what to do. We've worked it out. It's not about saying that sin is okay. It's not. It's about saying that God is bigger than sin. Does anyone disagree with that theology this morning? God is bigger than sin? Amen? What's getting so quiet in here this morning? <laughs> and your sin is not an automatic disqualification from serving God. Your sin is not an automatic disqualification from sin. It's, having said that, it's not a guarantee that if you have sin, you, you can just go, oh, well. It's not either way. It requires discernment. We want church to be tidy. When was church ever tidy? 
Look through the book of Acts. Look through the book of Corinthians. Look through all these things and tell me when the church was ever tidy. Look at every church you've ever been to. Look at the last five churches you left. When, why did you leave them? Why? Because they were messy. I've got news for you. Welcome to Messy Church. And, and I have a promise for you. God told me this is going to be the messiest church in Blenheim. We are going to be the messiest church in Blenheim, but here's what else. We are going to be the most transformational church in Blenheim. I'm not saying this to, to knock on any other. We've got a great relationship. When we embrace the mess, I told this testimony of Virgil and Elvis last week. When we embrace the mess, God works. You want to clean up mess. If I want to clean my car, how do I clean my car without getting a little bit of dirt on my hands? You don't. There's a time where I might say to someone, hey, look, there's something going on in your life, and I think you need to take a break from ministry to focus on that issue. Then there's a time to say, hey, I can see you're working on this thing, or I can tell that God hasn't even convicted you on this thing. I can see it, you can't see it. God hasn't said anything to you yet. I don't understand that, but you're on a different journey. Uh, I'm going to let you keep serving anyway. And sometimes that might be exactly the same issue. Because we don't parent our children the same. We have to learn to disciple differently. Got like three supporters in here this morning. It's, it's good. We're worried people will abuse this. Again, we go, but people might abuse this. And some people might, in fact, I don't, some people will. Some people will. But again, my experience is when it's done for the right reasons, led by God and not by our own fear of confrontation. You know, I've known people that haven't addressed sin when God has been telling them to address sin because it would be easier not to. That's not right. But if, if, if it's God leading, if it's God saying, push here, don't push here, or address this, don't address this, if we follow God's leading on that, when we address it in the time and the season and the place that he's calling to address it, 90% of people grow closer to God. Let me ask this question. <laughs> if you get lost in a forest, if you get lost in a forest, when are you saved? Are you saved the moment someone who knows the way finds you? Or are you not saved until you, or are you saved when you get out of the forest? Yes. Both. If you're lost in the forest and someone who knows the way finds you, you go, I'm saved. But you're still in the forest. Yeah, but I'm saved because I'm with the one who knows the way. And then when you get out of the forest, you go, I'm saved. This is the journey with God. The moment we receive Jesus, the moment we find Jesus, the moment Jesus finds us, depending on your theology. Are we saved? Are we still in the forest? Does that make us less saved? No. Certain things I won't address until much later in the journey, just because I'm in a different place of the forest than someone else who might be lost in the forest. But as long as I follow the guide, and you go, what's repentance? What about repentance, Shannon? Repentance is choosing to turn from your own path and follow the guide's path. Listen to him, what he says. <laughs> we need to find the process of not just knowing truth, but applying the truth. And we need to find it soon because the world is demanding it. And too often, the church misses God-appointed opportunities because we haven't learned the process. The church, historically, is two years behind. We need to start asking questions 10 years ahead. Like this one. 
In 10 years' time, same-sex marriage is going to be more normalized in New Zealand than ever before. And there are going to be married couples who have adopted children. And the church is going to encounter these families. And these families are going to encounter Jesus. And the question I have is I believe that the Bible is clear about marriage between, being between a male and a female. I don't think personally God has moved on this. But how do we apply that truth? Do we insist that they separate, knowing what broken homes does to young children? Or do we say don't, knowing what? I don't have an answer, I just have a question. But if we don't start asking that question now, we'll have to ask it in 10 years' time. And I'll tell you, we'll do the wrong thing because we'll react instead of discern and we'll cause pain and we'll cause suffering and we'll cause hurt. We need to start asking these questions because the world is not as clear-cut as we would like it to be. It's just not. It's just not. I wish it was. We know what the Bible says about divorce, but when somebody goes through one, what do we do? We know, that the, we know what the Bible says about multiple wives or polygamy. When the missionaries went to Papua New Guinea with the gospel, village elders with five wives became Christians. Do we tell them to divorce four of them? knowing how God feels about divorce, not to mention what that would mean culturally for the four women who have been disowned? Or do we tell them to, oh, I don't know. Church is messy. Maybe we introduce them to the one who knows the way and go grow in him, learn in him. Listen to him, journey with him. He knows the way. I was lost in the forest once, but I wasn't lost where you were lost. We want to make the Christian life easy, but it's not. I want to finish with this. I want to thank you for giving me a little bit of extra time this morning. I want to go back to our story in Acts. You know the one with Paul? You probably forgot all about it. You go, what did they have to do with anything? Here it is. Paul is in this place in Athens, yeah? And it says there's statues Everywhere. (laughs) Acts chapter 17, verse 16. says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols that he saw everywhere in the city. Now, there's a verse that says, tear down idols. Tear down every idol. And so he could have gone, the Bible says, let's tear down idols. Because the Bible calls them idols. But what does Paul do? What what does God do? He glorifies himself through an idol. (laughs) Do you have a verse for that? (laughs) I don't have a verse for that. (laughs) I I, I don't. But God does it. I mean, that's my verse for that. (laughs) God can use something built for sin to glorify his name. Not because it's not sin, but because God is bigger. In a forest full of idols, Paul saw a tree. I want this to be the point of difference for our church. That the things the enemy intended for harm, God would use for good. I felt like God said that there are things that we would condemn and God's about to use them to glorify his name. Not because they're righteous or good, but because God is righteous and good. I want to encourage you this morning, learn to discern the truth of God. You're going to need to hold on tighter to him than ever before.
and then discern how to apply that truth in the lives of individuals, in your family, with your co-workers, with people in the church, new and existing. I want to encourage you, in a forest that is full of sin, keep your eyes open for the trees. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are my employer. (laughs) And Lord, I thank you that you challenge us. And Lord, this morning we have been challenged. Lord, I have been challenged as I read, as I write. Lord, our desire is to find your truth and to apply your truth. Our desire is not to be conservative or to be liberal. Our desire is not to be just without grace or grace without justice. Our desire is to be right where you are. Lord, help us to see the forest for the trees. Help us to see the places. Just as Paul said, God is not far from any one of us. Help us to see the places where God is close, even to people we wouldn't think he was close to. Help us to see, help us to apply, help us to discern, help us to know times and seasons and days and and, and all these things. Lord, challenge our spirits. For For some here today, this has brought them to life. For some here today, this has pulled out a foundational block of everything they've believed for years and years and years. But Lord, you are the one that rebuilds. You are the one that tears down. And Lord, I pray that as we go from this place, we go in the Holy Spirit that leads us and helps us to discern. And so, Lord, I pray every individual in this place that has the Holy Spirit with them, would you speak to them? Would you convict us where we need convicting? Would you set us free where we need releasing? And, Lord, would you be glorified in this church in our homes, in our workplaces, in our words, in our actions, so that many more will find the hope of the big God that we worship. Amen. Amen.